Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 65, Mehmet the Conqueror. First, I'd like to thanks, thank Alexander Bukev for increasing his pledge. He now has access to all 66 episode transcripts for just $3 an episode. So consider pledging. Uh, as always, you know, it's uh, it takes a lot of time. You know, I spend really probably half of all my weekends working on this or the, the book that I'm working on. And, uh, you know, the little financial support I get really makes it a lot easier to kind of justify giving up so much free time and, and putting all that I have into doing this. So really a huge thank to all you guys. And uh, yeah, reach out sometime. It's always nice to hear from you. So last time, we left off with Mehmet's first burst of activity following the conquest of Constantinople. Several invasions of Albania and a major invasion of Serbia. Both efforts were bloody failures. While that was occurring, Serbia and Hungary saw the deaths of their leaders, bringing young men to the thrones while Vlad Dracul took control of Wallachia and installed his friend Stephen of Moldavia in that country. All in all, with the exception of Vlad and Skanderbeg, the powers opposing the Ottoman Empire were all under young but dynamic leadership. The question was whether that youth would lead to powerful and dynamic resistance to Ottoman expansion or foolish actions, weakness, and disaster for the Balkan states? That is the question we'll answer in this and a few coming episodes. We'll start with Albania. Time and time again, the Ottomans have attempted to deal with Skanderbeg and resolve his rebellion in Albania once and for all. They must have been tired of losing thousands and thousands of soldiers year after year. With this in mind, Mehmet was done sending 15, 20, even 30,000 strong armies. No, in the summer of 1457, 70,000 Ottomans invaded Albania, vastly outnumbering the maybe 15,000 soldiers the Albanians could muster to meet them. Also, adding to the danger, the Ottomans were by now very familiar with Skanderbeg's tactics, hit and run, feigned retreats, ambushes, etc. So when he attempted to attack the Ottoman vanguard, it went nowhere. In response, Skanderbeg tried something new. He split his forces and had them march in all directions. The Ottomans marched into central Albania and, well, waited for Skanderbeg to appear. But he was nowhere to be found. Ottoman scouts scoured the region, but they could find no trace of the Albanian forces. Unsurprising, if you visit Albania, and I have several times, as you know, the mountains and the terrain can be very inhospitable, and local knowledge really makes all the difference. Skanderbeg and his forces stayed deep in the mountains for months, until the Ottomans decided... That Skanderbeg, well, he'd been defeated. I mean, he's nowhere to be found. And so they began to withdraw back to Macedonia. At this moment, 
Skanderbeg brought his forces back together and prepared to attack the Ottoman camp. They mounted a surprise attack on the unsuspecting Ottomans, taking the much larger force by complete surprise. The Ottoman commanders desperately tried to regroup, gather their forces, assure their men that the Albanians were vastly outnumbered, that there was nothing to fear if they would only stand and fight, they could win. But the consistency and the ferocity of the Albanians' attacks had their effect. They did their damage. And around 15,000 Ottomans were killed and another 15,000 captured, all by a force of barely 15,000 Albanians. This was such a catastrophic defeat that even the proud Mehmet offered Skanderbeg peace in response. But the Albanian commander would only accept it if Svetigrad and Berat were returned to him, and Mehmet refused. But still, this enormous victory, probably Skanderbeg's greatest by this point, bought Albania crucial time to recover and prepare for the next Ottoman onslaught, because there could be no doubt that there will be a next Ottoman onslaught. But all was not well, because in that same year, 1458, Lazar Brankovic died. Though the cause was not recorded, he was around 46 and he had reigned for just two years and was the only of his father's sons not to be blinded by the Ottomans. His blinded brother Stefan now took the reins of an increasingly fragile Serbia. Sure, its old ally Hungary now had the dynamic young king what, well, at its helm, but what the young Matthias Corvinus was willing to do to help Stefan was kind of up in the air. As we know, the relationship between Hungary and Serbia, even when they were ostensibly allies, has always been a little bit mm, iffy. Sometimes Hungary is the best of friends, sometimes it's not really willing to go to bat for Serbia. Well, if we were wondering about the nature of this relationship, within a year, Stefan had his answer. He was overthrown in a coup orchestrated by none other than Matthias Corvinus and the King of Bosnia. Now, the question is, why would they do that? Well, when Lazar died, he left a daughter. And that daughter had been married to the son of the king of Bosnia. The king of Bosnia saw this moment of crisis of her Serbia as a chance to expand his power. And so he worked with the Hungarians to dethrone Stefan and install his son as the new despot of Serbia instead. But remember, the sister of both Lazar and Stefan was none other than Mehmet the Conqueror himself. He had taken uh, the, the, the sister and the, the daughter of the old Serbian despot as his, one of his wives. And so Mehmet had a very personal as well as geopolitical stake in all this. And he was furious to see the despotate of Serbia slip into the hands of the Bosnians just like that. Making the effort he put into that whole marriage alliance with the Branković dynasty, well, worthless. Now, of course, the Branković dynasty, again, they were kind of ostensibly allies of Hungary, but politics is very complicated at this time. And that alliance was still really worth something, if not, if for no other reason than in this case, we see it gave Mehmed the Conqueror an excuse to intervene, whereas if he was not related to the family, well, none of this really had much to do with him. So that's what Mehmed did. He invaded Serbia in response. 
When his army approached the Serbian capital of Smederevo, its new Bosnian despot made really no attempt to defend it. He immediately entered into negotiations and was allowed to flee back to his father's court in Bosnia, and so the Ottomans fully annexed the Serbian despotate. While Serbia had been conquered by the Ottomans before, well, this time was different. This time there would be no coming back until Serbia would eventually fight a war for its independence against the Ottomans after three and a half centuries. The loss of Serbia was frankly an enormous blow for its neighbors. The country had long served as a vital buffer state for both Bosnia and Hungary. Sure, both states still had conflicts with the Ottomans, but they were now direct neighbors, and Serbian cities and fortresses could now act as bases and jumping off points for future Ottoman invasions. This was demonstrated almost immediately as Bosnia knew it had next to no hope against the Ottomans, as it continuously sought foreign support to no avail. It allowed Ottoman forces to cross its territory and essentially just did what it was asked. Within a year or so, Bosnia's King Thomas was dead and succeeded by his son, that same man who had so briefly been the last despot of Serbia. But now, while all this had been going on in Serbia, Mehmet was also busy elsewhere. He had other conquests to attend to. As we've seen time and time again, the Ottomans were remarkable in that they had the resources to mar mount two campaigns at once, provided at least one of them was somewhat smaller. In this case, that second smaller uh, conquest was the conquest of Morea also known as the Peloponnesus, that southern part of Greece south of Corinth, connected by that narrow isthmus of Corinth, which, as we'll talk about, there's kind of a wall built across it at this time. So Peloponnesus, that's what I mean when I say Morea. Morea was the name for it during this period. Now, the despotate of Morea was an Ottoman vassal and had been ruled by the last Byzantine emperor, Constantine XI, before his coronation as Byzantine emperor. It, along with Trebizond, along the Black Sea coast, made one of the two, these two together, the final Byzantine successor states, the last sort of remnants of that empire. Now, this particular invasion of Morea was prompted by the despot's failure to pay his annual tribute to Mehmet, following, followed by a revolt against him by his people. The despotate was quickly conquered, it was really no problem for the Ottomans, as many of its great fortresses surrendered without a fight, and its ruler fled to Italy, where he was recognized by the Pope as sort of the rightful Emperor of Byzantium, although, of course, that title came with, well, a bit of prestige in Western courts and very little else. And so, just like that, poof, the despotate of Morea was gone, leaving the Empire of Trebizond as the last Byzantine state. In the meantime, Mehmet had also sent envoys to Vlad III of Wallachia to demand tribute, which was a bit late. Evidently, these envoys had failed to take their turbans off for Vlad the Impaler, insisting that they only do this when they pray. And so Vlad, you know, li lived up to his moniker, didn't take this well, and nailed the turbans to their heads. Now, the only reason this did not trigger an immediate invasion was that the Sultan was busy in Anatolia. 
So instead, the Bey of Nicopolis, remember Bey is sort of like an Ottoman governor, uh, the Bey of Nicopolis just across the Danube River was sent to negotiate. Except the real plan was actually to capture Vlad and take him to Constantinople to meet his fate. Ah, but Vlad Dracul got wind of this and set his own trap. And so the Bey and his entourage were ambushed and themselves impaled. Vlad's boldness was in part because he had recently signed a secret alliance with the young Hungarian king, Matthias Corvinus. Still, Vlad was getting away with all this only because Memo was occupied, and it was only a matter of time before the conqueror, the sultan, turned his attention to Wallachia and enacted his revenge. It should come as no surprise that the Pope was very alarmed by all of these developments. I mean, the fall of Serbia and Morea, they were in progress or had already finished. The fall of Constantinople had happened just six years previously. All these events together led him to call the Council of Mantua in 1459. There, he gathered representatives from around Europe and implored them to cease fighting between themselves and to unite against the Ottoman threat. By the time the council finished its work in January of 1460, a proclamation had gone out. But more or less the only ruler who responded was Vlad in Wallachia. In short, even the Pope by this point could do next to nothing to unite Europe against the Ottomans. European powers, well, they just didn't feel like listening. Nobody took it seriously. No one wanted to devote the resources. And remember, when we think back to all the crusades of the last century and a half, well, they've been largely disasters. You know, great European powers sent their finest knights and noblemen and soldiers off to the Balkans only to see most of them never return. And so all these things together had their effect and there was not much appetite for resistance. The Ottomans, for their part, well, they were continuing their conquests unabated. Mehmet soon conquered the Genoese fortress of Amasra on the Black Sea coast as he prepared for a greater assault on the empire of Trebizond, again now the last Byzantine successor state still standing. As he shifted his focus to Anatolia, he signed a three-year truce with Skanderbeg, further allowing the Albanians to gather their strength while the Ottomans were distracted, but also proving the ability of Skanderbeg to fight off the Ottomans, gaining him even greater prestige. But of course, it also assured the Ottomans that the Balkans would be at least somewhat quiet while they focused on Trebizond. Now, just before Mehmed got to Trebizond, there were still a few Anatolian Beyliks, remember these are like princedoms, principalities basically, left for Mehmet to conquer and bring under central Ottoman rule. First on his list was the Turkish Jandarid dynasty, based in Sinop, also on the Black Sea. So if you think of like the, the, the top of the Anatolian Peninsula, Sinop is kind of at the, the peak. It forms a little triangle, so it's right up there in the middle. Now, this Anatolian Beylik had existed as a state for over two and a half centuries at this point. But in the face of the full might of the Ottomans, a full-size Ottoman army, 
and a nice sweet deal in which the leader was offered sort of the the, the deal to become the Bay of Filipopolis, modern Plovdiv in Bulgaria. Well, it was a deal he couldn't refuse, and the Beylik surrendered peacefully, and there was no war. Now, Trebizond was the last remaining independent state on the Black Sea coast before you got to sort of Georgia and the bit of the Black Sea that uh, turns up north. So Trebizond stood alone because also importantly, it had formed alliances, marriage alliances with several of these Anatolian Beyliks, but now they were gone. There were no more friends. Now, Interestingly enough, back in 1442, Mehmet's father Murad had attempted to take the capital city of Trebizond, but bad sea conditions caused that attempt to fail. Then, during the siege of Belgrade in 1456, the local Ottoman governor made yet another attempt, but this failed as well. But it did succeed in garnering more tribute from Trebizond. At this point, knowing more attacks were basically inevitable, the ruling family spent these years desperately seeking allies. When the emperor died, his brother kept up the work, throwing about schemes and trying to to sort of take over bits of the Ottoman Empire and to work with other people and pull some people together to carve out a larger bit of territory for themselves. Well, when Mehmet found out about all this scheming, he set about invading immediately. Of course, again, by this point, he had already successfully isolated Trebizond by conquering all of its nearer neighbors along the Black Sea, so there was nothing to stop him. The siege began when men of the Sultan's navy arrived ahead of the army and encircled the city. The emperor was feeling bold, thinking that his allies, the Georgians, or one of the nearby Turkish Beyliks, who he had married into, would come to his aid. Remember, he had lost all those Anatolian Beylik allies, but he still had a few left to turn to. But ultimately, the emperor chose to negotiate, just like the Beylik at uh, Sinop. He put himself, his empire, well, to be clear, the empire of Trebizond was called this only because its leader had the title of Emperor Caesar. Uh, It was a fairly small place. It wasn't some grand state or something. It was smaller than Albania, I would guess off the top of my head. But he knew he couldn't resist. He knew his allies weren't coming. And so his people were really at the mercy of the Sultan. But Mehmet was generous. Having avoided a costly siege, the population was left alone, while another portion of the population was enslaved. The city's main church was converted into a mosque, and the central citadel was garrisoned by Janissaries. Stephen S. Runciman noted that the date Trebizond surrendered was 200 years to the day from when the Byzantines recaptured Constantinople from the Latins and reestablished their empire. But now, the last Byzantine city had truly fallen. Okay, sure. There were a few scattered islands with former Byzantine subjects on them, now kind of ruled by Latin lords, but these were not true Byzantine states, and in any case, their days were numbered. But back to the empire for now, back to Europe. Now, while Mehmed had been occupied with Trebizond, Vlad the Impaler had brutally raided Bulgarian territory, Ottoman territory, but Bulgarian lands, south of the Danube. 
He impersonated an Ottoman Sipahi cavalryman to infiltrate Ottoman camps and massacre their inhabitants. He claimed to have killed over 23,000 Ottomans in this raid, writing to his ally, Matthias Corvinus, that, quote, I have killed peasants, men and women, old and young, who lived at Oblutsitsa and Novoselo, where the Danube flows into the sea, up to Urhova, which is located near Chilia, from the lower Danube up to such places as Samovit and Gigan. We killed 23,884 Turks, without counting those whom we burned in homes or the Turks whose heads were cut by our soldiers. Thus, your highness, you must know that I have broken the peace with him, Sultan Mehmed II, end quote. But the raid was enough to ensure that once Mehmet returned to Europe, no doubt Vlad would be first on his list. But for the moment, he was still too busy and sent his Grand Vizier, remember a Grand Vizier is kind of like a Prime Minister, with an army of 18,000 to take care of this upstart Valachian. But they were utterly defeated, with only about 8,000 even managing to return. Now, Mehmet had no choice but to drop everything and address the problem. Vlad had created a culture of fear amongst Ottomans living in the region. Christians were spared in his raids in Bulgaria, so they had no such fear. And this fear had seriously undermined the Sultan's authority. Similarly to Skanderbeg, the image of someone resisting the great Mehmed and getting away with it like this, time and time again, was a great encouragement to the enemies of the Ottoman Empire. And so with 1462 beginning and Mehmed assembling a massive army said only to be rivaled by the one he used to conquer Constantinople itself, maybe as many as 100,000 soldiers along with Radu the Handsome, Vlad's half-brother, commanding a cavalry detachment, and the likely person that uh, Mehmed would use to install as the new Voivoda of Wallachia once he defeated Vlad. Obviously, Wallachia could muster nothing even approaching that number of soldiers, only perhaps thirty to 35,000 with great effort to recruit nearly every man who could hold a sword. And so Vlad turned to his Hungarian ally, Matthias Corvinus, for help. But his call went unanswered. And so the Wallachians would have to face three to one odds against this Ottoman invasion. A Serbian-born Janissary provides the following account of the Ottoman attempt to cross the Danube at Vidin and invade Wallachia. Quote, when night began to fall, we climbed into our boats and floated down the Danube and crossed over to the other side several miles below the place where Vlad's army was stationed. There, we dug ourselves trenches so that cavalry could not harm us. After that, we crossed back over to the other side and transported the Janissaries over the Danube. And when the entire army had crossed over and we prepared to set out gradually against Vlad's army, together with the artillery and other equipment, that we had brought with us. Having halted, we set up our cannon, but not in time to stop 300 Janissaries from being killed. Seeing that our side was greatly weakened, we defended ourselves with the 120 guns which we had brought over and fired them so often that we repelled the prince's army and greatly strengthened our position. Vlad, 
seeing that he could not prevent the crossing, withdrew. After that, the emperor crossed the Danube with his entire army and gave us 30,000 coins to be distributed amongst us. End quote. Now, obviously, Vlad couldn't face the Ottomans in pitched battle. He was far too outnumbered. So he turned to classic underdog tactics. Scorched earth, hit-and-run attacks. The Sultan's massive army soon found itself without food, without water, struggling to provision itself as it searched for the Wallachian army. Vlad even sent peasants with diseases like leprosy, bubonic plague, and tuberculosis to the Ottomans to infect them successfully causing an outbreak of plague in their camp. Feeling pressured for time, the Ottomans bypassed fortresses and made it straight for the Wallachian capital of Turgoviste. There, before the attack, the Ottoman army camped for the night. Vlad himself, just as he had done in Bulgaria, disguised himself as a Turk and wandered around the camp to acquaint himself with it and figure out the location of the Sultan. Late that night, Vlad and his men attacked the Ottoman camp. A papal legate later recounted what happened. Quote, During the entire night, he sped like lightning in every direction and caused great slaughter, so much that, had the other commander to whom he had entrusted his remaining forces been equally brave, or had the Turks not fully obeyed the repeated orders from the Sultan not to abandon their garrisons, the Wallachian undoubtedly would have gained the greatest and most brilliant victory. But the other commander, a boyar named Gelesh, did not dare attack the camp from the other side as had been agreed upon. Vlad carried out an incredible massacre without losing many men in such a major encounter, though many were wounded. He abandoned the enemy camp before daybreak and returned to the same mountain from which he had come. No one dared pursue him since he had caused such terror and turmoil. I learned by questioning those who had participated in this battle that the Sultan lost all confidence in the situation. During that night, the Sultan abandoned the camp and fled in a shameful manner. He would have continued to this way had he not been reprimanded by his friends and brought back, almost against his will. End quote. The next day, the Ottomans bloodied and demoralized after losing perhaps 15,000 soldiers, went to attack Turgoviste anyways. What they found was an abandoned city with its gates wide open. They entered and found more than 20,000 impaled bodies, not of the local population, but of their fellow soldiers and countrymen. The rotting results of previous raids into Bulgaria by Vlad. A Greek historian recounted their reaction. Quote, the Sultan's army entered into the area of the impalements, which was 17 stades long and seven stades wide. There were large stakes there on which, as it was said, about 20,000 men, women, and children had been spitted. Quite a sight for the Turks and their Sultan himself. The Sultan was seized with amazement and said that it was not possible to deprive of his country a man who had done such great deeds, who had done, who had such a diabolical understanding of how to govern his realm and its people. And he said that a man who had done such things was worth much. 
The rest of the Turks were dumbfounded when they saw the multitude of men on the stakes. There were infants, too, affixed to their mothers on the stakes, and birds had made their nests in the entrails. End quote. That night, the Ottomans defended their camp with a deep ditch, and in the morning they left the country, declaring victory in spite of not attaining their goal of the complete conquest of Wallachia. But they did install Radu, along with some soldiers, to continue the fight. Vlad defeated his half-brother in several battles, but more and more Wallachian boyars gradually went over to his brother's side. In the meantime, relations of, with Stefan Cilmare, Stefan the Great of Moldavia, who had helped Vlad gain his throne, had soured as he attacked the Wallachian fortress at Chilia, as Vlad was busy dealing with Mehmed. But Vlad had stationed 7,000 soldiers there, and they defended the fortress successfully, wounding the Moldavian king. And so, with this bloody end, we see the end of 1460, or see the beginning, rather, of 1462. It's still July, and Mehmet has much more to do. In the next episode, we'll hear about Mehmet's further attacks on Albania, Greek islands, Bosnia, Venice, and more. And a new force will enter the picture from the east, challenging the Ottomans for supremacy in Anatolia. So don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. And as always, Uspech. Good luck.